It's a reading from Luke 15, 11 through 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, nor not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs uh, ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son. I thought he was dead and alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of his servants and asked, What things, what does this mean? And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave, gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and that is mine, and what is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and now he's found. The word of Jesus Christ. Amen. Yes, please be seated. When I die and go to be with the Lord, I'm hoping that he'll give me a voice like Mike Lebs. <laughs> Not just a spoken voice, a singing voice as well. Wow, thank you so much for your patience as we've tried week by week to unpack the amazing truths in this parable. 
um, again, as we began the summer, we recognize that there are just some stories that Jesus told that are seminal, that are life-transforming, if we will understand them, if we will, as, as the author of Proverbs wrote, search for the truth, as for hidden treasure, we'll call out for insights, if we'll, if we'll um, seek the Lord in the midst of these parables will find it and we will be transformed. The danger, as always, is that we'll look at these familiar parables and go, I got this already. And, and so my sweet invitation to you is lay that aside for a second. Hear again the story of the prodigal God as if for the first time. To help us, I want to just quickly, and, I, and we are going to uh, speed dial a little bit today. Those slides, if you choose to follow them, are going to be going by pretty fast. Um, but um, the goal is not to obliterate you with that and, and even to get you, if you don't want to, to write that down. The goal is to get the large picture of this story and find ourselves and find ourselves in the story. <coughs> Um, let's, let's look uh, for just a moment at where we've been and what we've learned together. The prodigal son redux here. There's, we saw those three astonishing developments. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago? First of all, that the younger son asks for his share of the estate. In other words, he's basically telling the father that he wishes that the father were dead. And, and we, were, we felt the weight of that a couple of weeks ago as we looked at that younger son. The younger son is saying, he's not asking him to divide his estate. He's asking him literally to divide his bios, to divide his life. And if that were not astounding enough, then we see that the father gives it to him. And, and despite everyone else in the community who would say, don't do that, do not do not give it to him. The Father does. And we're that not astounding enough. And we see when the Son comes back, that amazing story we looked at last week, when the Son comes back, the Father welcomes the younger Son. There's not an ounce of judgment or condemnation. In fact, we saw the Father throws himself, runs to the Son, throws himself around the Son, specifically so that no one else would judge him. So that no one else would on the Father's behalf or the community, which he also sinned against, on their behalf, that no one else would give him the consequences. The Father welcomes him back. And it's just this amazing story. It's an amazing story. And if it ended right there, it would be so beautiful, right? It would be, it would be just so profound. And, and we would be forever blessed by that story. The story didn't end there. And, and in fact, as we remember the beginning of the story, when Jesus was hanging out with younger sons, younger daughters, right? Then, then the older sons and the older daughters, the religious people of his day, were looking at him like he was crazy. They say, why do you hang out with these prodigal children, these, these children who spend lavishly on themselves? What shouldn't even be theirs. And, and we remember that Jesus told this story to them, not to the younger sons in our midst. So, so as beautiful as it is, it would be worthy of Hallmark Channel if it just ended right there, right? We'd, we'd have plenty of good things from it, but it doesn't. The plot thickens a little bit. Now, I want to stop for a second and remind you again that Jesus set us up for this. He was not 
above doing that. He gets us into this rhythm. We've shared that before. This rhythm where we go, this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. Here's the rhythm. Something is lost. Remember that? Someone searches for it. Something is found and everybody celebrates. Almost has a lilt to it, right? Something is lost. Someone searches for it. Something is found and everybody celebrates. But last week, we sensed for the first time one of the plot twists. Last week, we recognized that something was lost, but nobody in this third story, nobody went searching for him. Nobody went searching for the younger brother. And there's a strange plot twist that, that doesn't seem strange to us, but everybody in Jesus' day, just like they were astounded when they gave him a third of his, his wealth and resources, everybody in his day was. So why didn't somebody go after him? And, and the second question there is, so many of us have asked, is, is, God, why didn't you go after him? Why didn't the Father go after him? And we saw the Father's heart. We saw everything in that Father wanted to go after him, and he didn't. He didn't. And we're going to explore that in the, in the coming weeks. But today we get another astounding twist. There is another son. Of course there's another son. He's the guy that gets two-thirds of the estates, right? He's this background figure so that we can point to the main figure of the younger son, right? No, there is another son, the elder son, right? And I'm going to suggest to you that the elder son is the purpose of the story. Certainly, Jesus didn't feel he had to justify his love for the younger sons. And all of us younger sons in the room are so grateful to God for that. But there's more to this story. There is an elder son. So what do we know about this guy? What do we know about this elder son? First of all, again, he was given a double portion. And he was given that double portion of the estate for a reason. The job of the elder son was to keep the family together. And I see this happening even in our modern day. I'm involved with many people in the last days of their life, and I watch how they um, ensure that their wishes will be carried out after they're gone. They have lots of different ways of doing that, but they often bless one person. It might be a family member, it might not be, but they bless one person and say, your job is to keep this family going. Your job, if there's confusion after I'm gone, your job is to make it very clear what my wishes are. There's always this person, even in our modern culture, whose job it is to keep the family together. And in Jesus' time, that fell to the elder son. I shared with you before that it's kind of true in my own story. That when my dad went remote, when my mom had overwhelming illnesses, um, uh, amazing, challenging migraine headaches that would knock her down for days at a time, my sister, my eldest sister, would rise up and parent us. And she's doing it to this day. She's still parenting me to this day. Uh, she ended up being a lawyer. Surprise, surprise, huh? And, and she's parenting me to this day. I love her to death. I love her to death for it. But that was her role. She was the oldest daughter. She was the oldest child, right? Uh, so, so in this case, the eldest son would receive two-thirds of the estate, and the younger 
son would receive one-third, but the elder son got his two-thirds to keep the family together. But keep in mind here at this portion of the story now that the younger son had already received his one-third, right? He'd already received his share. What did that mean? It meant... Now, this is... This is I have to kind of navigate this. My Sunday school class was really helped me do this earlier today. It meant that in a sense... In a sense, everything that the father had was the elder brothers, right? If there's only two sons, not, not 12 children here, uh, it meant that when the father passed away, everything that he had would be the elder brothers. And, of course, the, the tantalizing thought here is the father is throwing one of the biggest celebrations of his life on whose dime? Right? On whose dime? Do you know that language? Uh, who's paying for this, right? Um, the elder son is, right? And, and, and I, I find myself getting involved in financial stuff, and I get all high and mighty about financial kinds of things, but, but, but I'm just like the elder son. I'm following the money, right? Following the money. And the son comes back. Here's this. He's been gone the whole time. The whole time this, this whole drama was playing out, the elder son wasn't there, and he comes back and there's this wild party going on, right? And, and it's for the younger brother, and the father's throwing it on the elder son's inheritance, right? So it's not, it's not rocket science. Um, I mean, I get mad at a lot lesser things. It's not rocket science to see why he refused to come into the party, right? He refused. And note what's happening there. When he refuses to come into the party, um, I mean, that was, that was a worthy offense of being disinherited in that culture, right? But what does the father do again? What does the father do again? In refusing to come to the party, he's making the father come out to him. Making the father come out to him. He's humiliating the father. And the father does it. He does it. Which tells us that, in a sense, the elder brother is no different than the younger brother, is he? The elder brother wanted what the father could give, but didn't want the father. The father pleads with him come, come into the celebration. And the elder brother crosses his arms. I'm adding that. He says, no, the language is amazing, right? You, you didn't even give me a fatty calf. This son of yours, his heart is coming out through his mouth, right? And Scripture says that's true. Out of the abundance of our, the heart, the mouth speaks. You can see exactly what's going on in this elder brother's heart. He's modeling a surprising way of dishonoring the father. And we're used to it in the younger brother. Some dishonor the father, right, by being very, very bad. Using Tim Keller's language, being very, very bad. Some, some, Jesus is saying, dishonor the father by being very, very good. 
by trusting in their righteousness. What happens when you do that? Then, then you deserve, right? You deserve that two-thirds of the estate. When you live by your own righteousness, then, then that's like a weapon in your hands that you can use against the Father. What are you thinking, Dad? What are you thinking in, in loving this younger son who hurt you so bad? And the Father's going, don't you realize what you're doing to me right now? You're breaking my heart. Don't you realize what you're doing to me right now, older brother? Some dishonored by being very bad and some dishonored by being very good. If I could take a parenthetical statement for a second, just say, there, I think there's not just two kinds of people here in this story. There, there are three. And it's an oversimplification, but, but Jesus is telling a short story, right? Some of us are like the younger brother. There are people who are the younger brother. We don't care what anybody else thinks. In fact, when, when people try, like my sister, to, to govern our lives, that actually drives us away. And, and we're going to do it our own way. We're not going to listen to anybody else, not even our Father. We're, we're going to do it our own way. We're going to find our own way. Tim Keller calls it the, the journey of self-discovery, and much of our culture does that. I don't need no stinking Bible, right? I don't need God to tell me what to do. I can find it my own way here. And there are people who are like the younger brother, who, excuse me, who are the younger brother. I'll go to a metaphor instead of a simile. But there are also people who are the older brother. We looked this morning in Romans chapter 2, right after describing in Romans chapter 1 the, the, the epitome of younger brothers. And he goes into sordid detail in Romans chapter 1 that describes North American culture to a T. Uh, and he says they're, with, they're without, without any sense at all of propriety, um, and they're going to receive, should they fail to turn, they're going to receive the due consequences of their sin. And we're going, us elder brothers are going, super. You show them, God. You give them what they need, right? And then right then, Romans chapter 2, 1, right after that, then he says, so you are without excuse. The apostle says, you who cast judgment on another. In other words, he's saying... You are without excuse, you elder brothers who are propping up your righteousness by hoping that God grades on a curve and as long as your righteousness is better than the national average, you're okay, right? There are people who are the older brother whose identity is formed by comparing themselves to others. And then there, there are people who are not the older brother, and, I, and I, I'm gonna, I think this is me, who are not just the older brother, but are kind of this mixture between. Is there anybody else out there like that? Sometimes I'm the younger sister. You know? Sometimes I'm the younger brother. And I, I, I say, God, I'm going to do this my own way. I, I don't care what you think. And other times I, may, I might have one good day, and then I go, God, see, I had a good day, right? God, you, you've got to bless me because, because I happen to live one day right. Some of us are elder brother-ish. We, we live in that in-between place. I want to speak today, especially, to those who are the elder brothers or sisters and to those who maybe are elder brother-ish. 
who find themselves sometimes living out of that line. And if you're not sure who you are, this story kind of unpacks some of the, of the evidences of elder brother syndrome here. What are they? First of all, it says, when the brother found out, it says he was angry. Anger is, a, is an evidence of an elder brother spirit, and especially anger when things don't go your way. You see, elder brothers and sisters believe that if you live a good life, right? However you define that. If you live a good life, then you should get a good life. So when things go wrong, one of two things could happen. When things go wrong, you'll be furious with God. Just like this guy was furious with his father. This son of yours. He wouldn't even identify himself with a situation When things go wrong, you'll either be furious with God or you'll be furious with yourself because you failed yourself again. You set yourself up to be righteous and and you failed again. Uh, One author puts it this way. You, You live between two worlds. I hate thee and I hate me. Right? But the operative word is loathing. An evidence of an elder brother spirit is anger. Another one is this sense of uh, of superiority. I'm not going to go in there. I'm better than those people, right? He refused to go in. And, and, and competitive comparison is a way many of us as elder brothers achieve a sense of our own significance. I don't have to be, I don't have to hold myself to God's standard of righteousness. I just have to do better than you, right? We practice this all the time when we're backpacking, right? I don't have to... Uh, to run from the bear, I just have to be faster than you, right? So I, 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 I'm going to live if I'm, as long as I'm faster than you. And, and elder brothers are so good at that thing. You feel like you're better than others. One author, Richard Lovelace, puts it this way in his book, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. People who are no longer sure that God loves them. Oh, don't miss this, you guys. People who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure people. And that insecurity shows itself in pride and a fierce, excuse me, a fierce defensive assertiveness of our own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. Self-righteousness creates an unforgiving, judgmental spirit. And here's where the rubber meets the road. It's impossible. That's a strong statement, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak in hyperbole for a second. It is impossible, apart from Jesus, to forgive someone when you feel superior to them. Oh, meditate on that, you guys. When you're so busy feeling superior, you're not really forgiving them. You're pitying them, right? And, and, and Jesus isn't about pity. He's about forgiveness. Amen, sister. Dear sister, this hooked me up with a couple of other books on forgiveness. I guess, I guess the reason I'm a forgiveness junkie is because I need forgiveness so much. I need forgiveness so much. So anger is a sign. Superiority is a sign. Joyless 
fear-based compliance. With the, are you saying the older brother is afraid of his father? Not of his father. He's afraid of losing his inheritance, right? So he was the good son just because he wanted what the father could give him. Look how many years I have served you. Uh, ESV puts it, another version puts it, slaved for you, right? Look how many years I've slaved for you. Elder brothers serve, but it's out of slavish fear of loss rather than love and joy. Elder brothers may do good for others, but it's not out of delight. It's not out of, of, of a joy in the deeds themselves. It's not out of a love for the people they're serving or even for the pleasure of God, right? They're not feeding the hungry or, or clothing the poor. They're feeding and hungry. Excuse me. They're feeding and clothing themselves. Themselves. They're clothing themselves in self-righteousness. And God says, I'll let it go. Let it go, right? Their heart's fundamental self-centeredness is not only kept intact, but nurtured by this fear-based moralism, or if you will, Paul goes on in Romans 3 to take it to the nth degree, legalism, right? Legalism. Joyless, fear-based compliance. I think it all lands... And this is kind of a summary statement. It all ends in this, a lack of assurance of the Father's love. Right? Have you ever noticed when someone's afraid of something happening, that they might actually cause it to happen? Right? So that they don't have to be afraid of it anymore. It's like the Presbyterian who fell down the stairs, landed on the bottom and got back up and said, thank God that's over. Right? Right? I knew it was going to happen, so I'm just going to do it and get it over with. Right? I've seen people, and I've probably been a victim myself of doing that the same way. I'm going to cause something to, uh uh-oh, uh-oh, she might break up with me. I'm going to break up with her first, right? Uh Uh-oh, that person might be mad at me. I'm going to get mad with them first. It's, it's, it's the strange thing when you, when you lack confidence in something that you actually create a situation where you're fulfilling your own prophecies. I'm not a psychologist. All the psychologists in the room are going, eee. okay. But, but I know it from my own experience, right? So as long as you're trying to earn your salvation by controlling God through your self-righteous goodness, right? You will never be good enough. Don't you understand that? You can't do it. You can't. You can't live up to the standard that Adam and Eve set when they said, we want to be like God. You can't live up to that. You're going to fall short every time. You, and when you fall short, then, then you experience this situation where you're not sure of God's love. You don't experience His delight in you. Now, do you find yourself in there? Some of us are elder brothers. And certainly, probably all of us are elder brother-ish. I got great news for you. I got great news for you. Remember when, when we found the great news for the younger son that the father was longing for him to return? The great news here is just as the father seeks out younger brothers and welcomes them home, so he longs for elder brothers. He longs for elder sisters to come home and celebrate as well. 
And that's, that's what I want to remind us of today. The Father is throwing a celebration literally in front of us here today. The Father is throwing a dinner to be held in His honor. And, and you are invited to it, right? It's to celebrate lost children who have found their way home. And as we've seen now in, in these four weeks, some are obviously lost. Everybody goes, oh, that person's lost. Many, many are not so obviously lost. There's nothing worse than being lost and not knowing it, right? You know what I do when I'm lost? People backpack with me know this for sure. When I'm lost, I, I walk faster, right? I walk faster because I... I I don't like being lost. I want to find the solution to it, right? But the problem is if you're lost and you're walking faster, you're getting more lost, right? Every book you'll ever read on backpacking says, stay still, stop, retrace your, your steps. But I just trundle on faster and faster, getting farther and farther from the thing that I want, much less the Father wants. Oh, beloved, let's, let's stop running, whether we are younger brothers, or whether we are older brothers, whether it's obvious that we're lost, or whether we've been fooling ourselves and not known. The crazy thing about this story is that it ends with us not knowing the outcome. We don't know. We're not told what happens. Again, that's another crazy thing. Wait, in all the other stories, there was a celebration and what was lost was found. We end the story with someone still lost. And it's like Jesus is crying out. He's saying, he's saying, don't be lost. Turn toward the Father, right? This story ends with us not knowing because, because we're writing the end of the story right now. We are saying to God, this is how I want the story to end. For some of us, it is cross-armed rebellion for the love of God. And with others with broken heart and awareness. Undeserved love of God, which is poured out for us through Jesus Christ. So let me just end with that question. What celebrations of your Heavenly Father are you refusing today? In what celebrations are you standing outside? Don't stand outside any longer. Jesus has made a way. He has made a way for you. So if today, even symbolically, you've come to that awareness of how far you are from God, know that He's asking you to come in to the celebration. This is, this is a gift of God. It is a sacrament. Um, all the elder brothers in the room say, only deserved people come here. But I'm saying anybody who has understood their lostness and trust that Jesus can take them to the Father is welcome at this table Come, come to the table. Pray with me, would you? God, my hands on this table are touching this luxurious fabric and thinking, oh my goodness, what a precious gift this table is. And God, I know, I know this pales in comparison to the feast that you're inviting us to, a feast that will last eternally, God. Thank you. Thank you for giving us this little foretaste, this, this little reminder, both of what you have done in giving your body this bread and spilling your blood this cup. 
but also in the little reminder that there is a feast to come that we will share with you and all those, all those who have trusted in you and gone before. Oh God, oh, soften our hearts. Open us to receive the grace that is ours in this sacrament. And God, I just pray that you take this simple bread and this simple cup and make it the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Minister to us grace through this table. God will give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm looking to the back and I see communion elements back there. If you're able to come to the table, I just think there's something good about moving and with your body participating. We recognize not everybody's able to do that. Some of you shouldn't um, based on your ability to um, safely move about the sanctuary. And, and we invite you to stay where you are and our elders will come to you uh, and bring the elements to you. But we are going to receive uh, this, this sacrament today by intention, which means beginning with those of you in the back, you'll come, you'll take the bread and an elder will say to you, the body of Christ. And, and, and they'll offer to you, the, this is juice in these cups and you dip the bread in the cup and partake of it and then return to your seats for our closing worship. If God would allow. Father's calling. He's inviting you. Come to the table of the Lord. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it, all of you, in remembrance of me. And, and, and Paul says, when we do this, in a sense, we proclaim in that great banquet. Chad's going to teach about in the weeks ahead. We participate in the celebration of eternity. Come to the table of the Lord. Would you, our servers, please come forward?